listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. And welcome to Belaboured number 86. This week we are speaking with Mia Tokumitsu about doing what you love and other lies about success and happiness. But first, the news. Teachers in Seattle are back in the classroom after a week-long strike delayed the beginning of the school year. They are voting Sunday on an agreement that includes several provisions well beyond wages and benefits. I spoke to Seattle Education Association President Jonathan Knapp earlier this week about what was on the bargaining table and why the teachers found themselves on strike. Things are going great. Uh, you know, we've had a uh, great turnout starting on Wednesday. We had uh, 95% of our members on the line on Wednesday, and on Thursday that that uh, increased to 97%. On Friday, we did some uh, community service projects around the around the city and around our schools and in our neighborhoods, and we had great turnout then too. So uh, everything looks great. Members are united and resolved about what we need to be to get in this contract so we can be successful with kids. What are the main issues that are still sticking points right now? The main, the main areas right now that we're still trying to figure out how to put all the pieces together in the puzzle have to do with getting a handle on excessive testing. We have proposal around how to deal with, with inequities in student discipline. The district is very interested in some additional time in the student day, and so we're looking at ideas around that. And then we also are you know, working on pay. I would love to hear a little bit more actually about the student discipline issue. I feel like that's not one I've heard come up in previous labor. Well, we were we were very conscious uh, going into this bargain about wanting to cut issues that we thought would resonate, uh, you know, not just with our members but in the community at large. And we've been doing more community organizing ourselves, uh, building our relationships out in the parent community and and with uh, community-based organizations. And so, you know, just in that process, we've gotten sort of more in touch with the sort of community aspirations, and some of these issues have really come forward. One thing that I didn't mention that's actually one of the things Uh that uh, is probably kind of off the table in the sense that I think we're pretty sure we have an agreement with the district on this. This is uh, for a minimum amount of elementary recess. But on the student discipline thing, uh, our our district is actually under investigation by the U.S. Department of Department of Justice for disproportionate discipline for African-American boys. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's not only happening in Seattle. We know that's happening, you know, across the country in all kinds of communities. And right. It's an issue that our members are passionate about, but also obviously parents are, are passionate about, too. So it's it's really been wonderful to find some common ground around these things like uh, discipline and, and testing and recess, that, you know, where we can really build a common agenda in the community. Yeah. And has that um, connected with um, Black Lives Matter organizing in Seattle? We have some members that are active and, you know, others that are not. And But, uh, you know, in the big picture, I think all of our, our members are really concerned about equity issues within schools. Of course, it's, it's timely and current events. Uh, but, you know, we want to we wanna get move the district to a place where they understand that educators should be, you know, deeply involved in discussions about uh, student discipline. We've really had an, a huge amount of support from the parents. You know, of course, uh, our labor sisters and brothers have been right there with us. You know, we've been working with yeah. them for years uh, on, you know, is- on our issues and their issues. Uh, here in Seattle, we're a part of the local labor council with the AFL-CIO, even though NEA is right. not affiliated directly with the AFL-CIO. So we have our own affiliation here locally. So we've built relationships in labor as well. City council members have, uh, you know, they, they put, put a letter out to the school board when the school board was going to vote on a resolution to authorize legal action against us. So they, you know, they came out saying that, that, that they really shouldn't do that. 
council members had a forum up at the city hall about education issues, about our issues, and, you know, really we're very supportive. Uh, so local politicians are, you know, paying attention to the to the organizational power we've built over the years and, you know, are really starting to see SEA as, as a major force in the city. This is the first strike for SEA in, in quite a few years. Um, yeah. What got to this point that striking was necessary? We really feel like we've given the, the, you know, the school board and the superintendent, you know, plenty of opportunities to understand that, you know, we want to get to an agreement, but there, there are deadlines here that, uh, that, that they're going to have to deal with. Our membership has, um, sort of realized, I think as many education associations across the country have realized that, you know, nobody else is going to ride to our rescue on this stuff. It's up to us to be the, uh, be the advocates for the, institution, you know, public education is a crucial institution in American democratic society. And, you know, we, I think we've in the past taken a little bit for granted that everyone agreed with that and that, you know, that, that <laughs> we, just, we didn't have to be the advocates for our own institution, but it turned out that there, that it's become a very contested terrain. And the point now for us is uh, I think we're going to be taking the lead on, on education issues. That uh, realization sort of has galvanized our membership in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, certainly the map test uh, protest was a factor in that. And uh, but you know, there's a whole story behind the scenes about how we've gotten organized as an association and really transformed our own association into being the, sort of the preeminent voice for public education in the region. And that's been a conscious strategy of, of how to move, uh, you know, how to move our membership to a position of power. And nobody necessarily wanted that it had to be this way, but given how contentious, uh, you know, education is, you know, it's kind of a wedge issue on the right and uh, you know, how crucial I think most people on the left feel it is for the, the success of American society. You know, it's crucial for us to, to, to be leading on, on education issues. You know, we, we started working about three years ago just, uh, you know, reaching out to our members, holding one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversations with our members to understand what's going on in their lives and what the issues are and 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 trying to bring the the union back to the center of relevance for our members you know make make their association really a crucial part of their lives and we, there's been a variety of initiatives we've we've uh started to do that but uh, i think it all really started with those that that one-on-one -on -one relational organizing that we started about 3 years ago over the last over the over 2 years starting 3 years ago we had more than 2000 one-on-one conversations with our members so we really have worked hard to to get back in touch with them that was Seattle Education Association President Jonathan Knapp, and we will have more on the Seattle teachers' new contract if they vote to approve it and what the outcome of this strike was in an upcoming episode of Belabored. And you may have heard that the city of Los Angeles is getting a $15 per hour minimum wage by 2020. It's been hailed as a major victory for the low-wage workers movement, but a report by the Garment Workers Center of Los Angeles showed that for tens of thousands of the city's garment workers, that minimum wage may never materialize because they've frankly never been paid the current minimum wage, which is much lower. The report shows how wage theft is rampant in the industry, and they are not only subject to poverty wages that are based on a very draconian peace rate system, but they're also exposed to various health hazards. They're constantly laboring in 
of extremely stressful, unsafe conditions, and many of them are intimidated from organizing because of their precarious immigration status and the uh, incredible job insecurity that they face every day. So while they're facing all of those issues, it's really impossible to have effective wage enforcement. And the report broadly calls for worker empowerment and a greater effort put towards worker organizing and um, also draws links between what we see going on in many other parts of the global manufacturing system. For instance, Bangladesh, which suffered that horrific uh, factory building collapse back in 2013, killing over 1,100 people. And they draw that through line from Bangladesh back to Los Angeles and back to the historic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that helped set in motion the uh, modern labor movement here in the U.S., Now those struggles are resonating once again across the world. And as we see in Los Angeles, uh, many of those horrible working conditions persist. And again, the problem is, as always, very much skewed along gender lines. This is a mostly Latina workforce we're talking about, and mostly immigrants. I spoke with Mara Martinez. She is uh, the head of the group, and she talked about what Los Angeles can do now that it has become one of the last places (laughs) in the country that actually has a viable garment manufacturing system and how to turn that into leverage for workers. There's a lot of things that make the garment industry kind of like a especially hard place to organize. And one of the one of those things is this downward pressure, this like peace rate system, and also kind of like the fear that is created because of people's documentation status. This is all um, what is legal, even though it is completely a violation of people's rights. Now is the time to really make a commitment to Los Angeles. Right now is the time that you can, you know, say, like, let's work to create something better here in the midst of this race to the bottom. And that was Mar Martinez of the Garment Workers Center in Los Angeles. This week, after shakeups in the organization this summer, our Walmart relaunched as an independent worker organization with support from 20 new partners, including Jobs with Justice, National People's Action, Demos, National Domestic Workers Alliance, and the Working Families Party. Hosting the relaunch event in New York were several workers on the organization's board, including former belabored guest Vedansi Luna, who shared her story of being laid off from the Pico Rivera Walmart store when it closed down for supposed plumbing problems. The store is reopening, but Luna and many of her most active co-workers have yet to hear back about getting their jobs back. I'm hopeful, she said, but it's Walmart. You can hear Venazzi's story on episode 76 of Belabored. The workers have new something new in mind for Black Friday this year, but wouldn't give too many details just yet, as they want new tactics to come as a surprise. I tried to wrangle them out of one of the workers, but she wouldn't give me any details. They made clear, though, that the race, recent raise at Walmart was not enough, and they would not be satisfied until they got to at least 15 an hour and reliable full-time schedules for those who want them. Five years into the campaign, our Walmart reiterated its commitment to worker organizing and to building an organization that is led by and for the workers, whether that ever looks like a traditional union contract or not. We will, of course, continue to keep up with our Walmart. I hope to have more for you soon. While the Obama administration rolls out a new ranking system for assessing the economic value of a college degree, 
Some are questioning whether colleges and universities in America are becoming so obsessed with the economics of higher ed that they're actually neglecting the real value of learning. A new report by the Campaign for the Future of Higher Education shows that the growing reliance on adjunct faculty um, that is uh, contingent and precariously employed uh, instructors is actually hurting higher education, and the most impacted students are also from poor backgrounds and from communities of color. Although competition for top colleges is driving massive commercial investment in flashy campuses and high-profile research facilities. The day-to-day task of teaching, the report argues, is increasingly being devalued and degraded and de-skilled. Increasingly, it's being outsourced to adjunct professors who have virtually no chance at a secure, full-time, stable job and a steady salary. And uh, they write that much of the new investment in higher education for both public and private institutions is actually being funneled not into faculty, not into classrooms, but into administrative salaries. And they write, quote, this priority is reflected in increases in the numbers of administrative positions, increases in those salaries, and increases in the percentage of college budgets going to those functions. For example, in 1990, faculty and staff outnumbered administrators by a ratio of 3 to 1. By 2012, that ratio had declined by about 40%. So in contrast to the traditional image of academic life being one of you know, living in a community of scholarship and tranquility and intellectual stimulation, today's adjuncts are being forced into a daily grind where they struggle with poverty wages and often have to do things like scrape by on food stamps to make ends meet. And uh, that's one major reason why adjuncts are now organizing with SEIU as part of the Fight for 15 movement. They're not paid by the hour, of course, but they are asking for an equitable wage for the courses that they teach. So while there's a huge emphasis on forcing accountability on teachers and measuring them by performance, the report shows that the economic conditions at many college campuses are making this near impossible for your average instructor, and student learning suffers. With all the emphasis on accountability and achievement, maybe lawmakers should be held accountable for failing to provide the basic conditions and funding needed to create that success. We talk a lot on this podcast about labors of love and doing what you love and whether or not that idea is worth anything. Um, This week, we have an expert on the subject. We have Mia Tokamitsu, who is the author of the new book, Do What You Love and Other Lies About Success and Happiness, here to talk to us about how and why our hope has been commodified and what we should do when we're not doing what we love in the workplace. Mia, your original critique of the do-what-you-love ethos at Jacobin went, like, totally viral, took over the entire internet, and led you to write this book. Why do you think that message resonated so much? Oh, well, um, I thought about that for a long time, actually, because before I actually wrote the article, I was actually Googling around, trying to see if anyone had basically written the same thing, because I felt just in my gut that there is this mass kind of resentment or at least discomfort with these kinds of tropes. And there were actually, uh, you know, critiques, but they tended to be more specific. So, you know, within a certain field or the idea of do what you love as career advice, 
Whereas I really was uncomfortable with the entire notion, you know, that we're expecting work to be motivated by love in a world where you have to do it. Most people have to do it in order to meet their most basic needs. And so I think my instinct was right um, as the as the kind of massive sharing of the article started to happen. But I think the other thing, too, is that when I wrote the article, I really tried to tread very carefully and not have it be a kind of completely cynical piece. I, I worked really hard. Everyone talks about, you know, tone. I did work really hard on my tone because I know that this is something that a lot of people earnestly believe. And I didn't want to be disrespectful to any workers that, you know, um, took this to heart a little bit. But I think that there was a simmering discomfort with this kind of trope. And especially, you know, in a, in a labor market that's pretty weak, where wages are flat and where people are working longer and longer hours without, um, you know, getting extra overtime or things like that. I just, assumed that there had to be some kind of frustration with all of these people hearing that, you know, you should be doing what you love. So you start your book with um, Michelangelo and you bring us up to the age of Steve Jobs. So Mm -hmm. looking at that history of of work, um, you argue that this idea of do what you love has been a rationale that that people and and especially creative workers um, in the arts um, and and other industries like that have been struggling with for centuries. So what's different today, and and how did we get to this point? I open with that example because um, on the one hand, it was so familiar. <laughs> you know, people complaining about work, you know, 500 years ago, you know, that's a kind of universal experience. But on the other hand, it was a little perhaps surprising to people who didn't know that's, you know, that poem or that story, which is that attitudes towards work, which I think we very often take for granted. But that episode shows that um, actually these attitudes towards work are very historically specific um, and that things haven't always been the way that they are now. And a lot of the myths around creative work, I think that we hold today really come out of the 19th century kind of romanticism, romantic thinking about, you know, these artists as kind of, I mean, I guess these tropes have, you know, been building longer than that, but, you know, as divinely inspired or having access to some kind of like deeper inner world and, and being motivated by their own kind of specialness. And I think today, you know, what, what happened, and I go into this in the introduction, the idea that work should be motivated by love is a twisted version of the Protestant work ethic, which very much saw work as a, a duty and a calling, but not necessarily um, pleasurable in and of itself. And I tended to agree with Tom Wolfe, who saw the kind of you know, more broadly distributed prosperity after the Second World War as allowing people to kind of cater to their own personal tastes um, and, and kind of pay more attention to themselves and, and what they wanted to do. People at this period also had uh, quite a bit more leisure time. And I think that those two kind of values became intertwined. So the idea that, you know, paying attention to yourself and your own wants and needs is 
a luxury, but it's also um, like a good way to be. It's a way of taking care of yourself. And then there's also this much longer trope of the Protestant work ethic of, of work being moral and good conjoined at some point. And so we're, we're now living in this world where work is both moral um, and I think that's, it's really important to remember that kind of strain of morality that is still with us, but it's not just that the work is moral, but it's that pleasurable work is especially good. You write, the promise of worker autonomy is embedded in the you of do what you love. Worker autonomy is a broadly appealing idea because it isn't limited to any particular kind of work. It's interesting that autonomy on the job has now been sort of conflated with love for the work when it used to be something that workers struggled for. Um, can you talk a little bit about how control over one's own work has been taken away and how do what you love was used to, to do that? Yeah, um, so I talk a bit about de-skilling in the book because this is something that's been happening since the you know industrial age. But I think what's really surprising now is that a lot of so-called professional work is being de-skilled. So office work, white collar work, um, and I think this has taken the professional class quite by surprise because I think. A lot of people go to college and attain all of these skills necessary for, you know, knowledge work or professional work. And the, the kind of tacit understanding is that this work is, you know, more privileged and more exalted because you're really using your own judgment. And I think what's happening is that once people get into these workplaces, they're finding that um, that's, you know, less and less so even in places like um, law firms, let's say. The idea that, um, you know, autonomy and how it's tied up with love is that, again, it's very much you-focused. You know, you get to use your judgment. You get to decide a lot of the conditions of your work and how you spend your time. And also, um, you know, you get to manage other workers, um, let's say, under you in the organizational chart. Um, and so that's, um, that's very appealing, again, in, in a world where, you know, under neoliberalism, right, where we're very much privileging the individual and we're told that kind of paying attention to your own desires is good. So if you can get a job that allows you to do that or that, you know, especially a job that celebrates your own judgment, I think that is something that's very appealing to a lot of people. Um, but of course, today we're in a situation where um, a lot of these kinds of, um, you know, knowledge economy jobs are becoming rapidly de-skilled. And one example I use is teaching. And teachers obviously have known this for a long time. But, you know, with the rise of standardized testing and all of these kind of managerial apparatuses that have sprouted up in in the teaching industry, I'm thinking like primary schooling here um, in particular, although it's true in higher ed too, you know, very often teachers are very heavily managed by people, by uh, another layer of knowledge workers who often haven't spent that much time in the classroom. And it, we can get into gender later, but it, of course it doesn't surprise me that, you know, one of the kind of knowledge worker, knowledge work fields that um, has come on this kind of de-skilling first and, and very rapidly, of course, is very much, uh, you know, tends to skew um, female in terms of, you know, the, the demographics of the workforce. So I think right now there's this kind of um, 
unpleasant surprise that's happening with professional workers, which is that, you know, this is work that was kind of, you know, this is what people go to college and, and get in debt to do, you know, it is to kind of work in a comfortable office and use your judgment. And then, you know, they find that these jobs are very heavily managed, very heavily surveilled and, and quite de-skilled. And it's, it's really an unpleasant surprise. And so I think that's one of the other things that's been causing a lot of dissatisfaction um, with tropes like do what you love lately. In your discussion of how this do what you love ethos can often kind of rob us of um, uh, other priorities, including, you know, self-care and being with friends and family, um, in our day-to-day lives, what would you say are maybe some particularly bad illustrations of this or do any examples come to mind from popular culture that maybe are a frame of reference for us who are trying to see how this plays out in our our everyday lives? Well, one example that I write about in the book, in the first chapter, I talk about The Good Wife, which is a television, you know, popular television series. Um, And in terms of, yeah, this idea of how work-life balance is, um, is actually presented to people. I thought this was a fascinating example of, um, you know, the show is about a woman who returns to this very hyper, you know, 24-7, really intense place. And that's portrayed as a very exciting and positive thing in her life. This is a woman who has been out of the workforce for 15 years, but it's like through working crazy hours, you know, that she finds this kind of sense of fulfillment. And obviously, you know, it's escapist, it's TV, but I thought it was fascinating that a wide audience would find this escapist, you know, um, as opposed to someone, you know, a fantasy of someone leaving work and, and being able to, to pursue other things. So that's one example, I think, of how our culture is really shaping ideas about so-called work-life balance and also maybe sending us conflicting messages. So, you know, that's one show that's entertainment and it's showing this kind of crazy 24-7 work schedule as something that's exciting and good. But of course, in people's like regular lives, you know, this is something that people struggle with, which is, you know, how to be all of these different roles that we're trying to be in addition to a worker, you know, a friend, a caretaker, a partner, and so on. And then, you know, a real life example that I would draw upon is another article that went pretty viral was the New York Times's kind of investigation of Amazon's white collar workplace. Um, And there you saw people really struggling um, to, to kind of work the rest of their lives around their work schedules. And in, in some cases it was, you know, really heart wrenching to read some of these stories of people being, you know, texted and emailed on vacation. Um, and, you know, one woman was even disciplined for kind of diminished performance after she had a stillbirth. And what struck me actually about that article and do what you love is when I look at, you know, young college students today and I, I see, you know, an elite brand like Amazon, I'm just thinking this is exactly the kind of place that they're working so hard to get into. You know, they're working hard to get good grades and, and get all these skills and, you know, a job at Amazon, which is an elite brand, it seems really secure. 
it kind of dawned on me that this is a place that is kind of the end point of all of this striving. And yet once people arrive in that place, there aren't always sources to figure out how you want to live the rest of your life outside of the office. What did you think of the reaction of uh, of Amazon CEO to the blowback to that article? I mean, did you feel like it was sincere when he was sort of energetic about it or? Um, yeah, I thought that was kind of curious. I know he said he, he, he didn't recognize, you know, this evil soulless place. Maybe he believed that was true, but I think the reporter spent about six months and they talked to quite a lot of people. Um, and it wasn't kept a secret that there was this investigation going on. So it's just kind of, it's a little hard for me to <laughs> see how sincere that could have been. This, again, this wasn't just one or two workers, um, at Amazon. They interviewed a broad array of people who were willing to go on the record and, and a lot who weren't, but it seemed also like the reporters worked very hard to corroborate a number of those stories. Clearly, I felt like it had probably taken him by surprise and obviously was embarrassing. But it must have just, perhaps it struck him as no big deal while the investigation was going on. And that's because some of the reactions I heard from other people, a lot of people said to me, oh, that reminds me when I worked at this place or yeah, I remember, you know, working at this other company and, and having all of these experiences. So I think it thrust Amazon as a brand into the spotlight. But maybe, you know, Jeff Bezos didn't think it was such a big deal while the story was being reported because this kind of workplace is actually incredibly common. Some people might see the uh, dilemma of do what you love, as you just said, this is a fairly commonplace kind of uh, way of working. Some people might kind of dismiss this dilemma as sort of a first world problem. Um, they might think of it as kind of petty to be worrying about, you know, self-fulfillment, or, or they might see it as something uh, that only affects people in a position of privilege. How do you confront that critique if, if you have heard it? And how do you kind of broaden this beyond the narrow frame of work-life balance that we often associate with corporate America? Right. Well, there are actually a couple of responses I would have to that. The first is that although the trope as something that can be taken seriously, I think really does circulate primarily amongst a, a rather privileged and elite group, I think it affects society very broadly because you know, the group that it circulates amongst, you know, tends to be not just privileged, but also powerful. And this trope is very often used to explain or justify why other workers aren't in as comfortable a position. So, for instance, I think it's the case that, you know, a lot of this individualist thinking allows, you know, people to ignore working conditions of other people, but it also allows them to feel very comfortable in being able to ignore that, right? Because if doing what you love is the reason behind your success, you know, it's the reason you're kind of in this privileged, comfortable position is because you have kind of individually solved the problem of what makes you the most happy, well, then everyone else who's below you or who is, um, you know, sh struggling, well, clearly they just haven't done that. 
So I think it offers an excuse uh, for people to not deal with the fact that, you know, this actually isn't uh, an option that's available to everyone. And the other thing I would say is actually, I think in a lot of cases, this trope has trickled down in a sense in that people who have espoused this, these kinds of values are really popular cultural figures you know, Steve Jobs is is looked up to not just from within the professional class, but from across society. And also people like Oprah Winfrey, you know, and with her kind of exhortation to live your best life. You know, people from all across society find that really inspiring. So I think these things have entered the culture at this point really broadly. And they've even, in certain cases... It, been cropping up in the realm of low-wage work. So for instance, in the book, I mentioned there was a Craigslist ad for a maid service company, and they were looking for a, quote, passionate individual to clean houses. And I don't know if that ad is still up, but every now and then I Google, like, Craigslist passionate house cleaning. And numerous ads from, you know, Craigslist in various cities have some iteration of that ad. You know, we're looking for someone who's passionate. We're looking for someone who, you know, loves doing this. And I think the people who wrote those ads probably just didn't even think twice <laughs> before uh, kind of including that in their job posting. I think it's kind of been so internalized that, you know, if it's your task to write a, a job posting, you it's a gut reaction to ask for a passionate worker whatever that means, and for whatever job you're, you're advertising for. You also wrote about the way that lovable or even sort of tolerable work was, you know, was developed as a reward for helping to control the working class. This is yeah. um, how the professional managerial class sort of developed. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about how the professional managerial class and this ideology sort of evolved hand in hand and how maybe that's changed for this particular class in recent years. Yeah. Um, so in that section, I, I cite an article that was actually written in the 70s. So uh, Barbara and John Ehrenreich uh, talk about how the managerial class emerges kind of in the Gilded Age as a kind of, in a sense, uh, I would use the word a buffer class between the capital owners and the workers. And it emerged, you know, alongside, you know, um, scientific management and the, the emergence of management as an academic discipline and, you know, journals about management studies and things like this. And essentially, they argue that what the professional managerial class, its, its actual function in society is to maintain class relations. So even though these managerial workers, uh, don't own the means of production, so they don't own the factories um, and the infrastructure, for instance. They are kind of installed to control the quote-unquote working class, but they're not of the working class. Um, you know, they argue that they had in, in, they had interests um, very much uh, separate to the workers, even though they they didn't own um, the capital themselves. And basically, they argue that the capital-owning class found that, you know, installing managers directly in the workplace allowed for a greater and kind of deeper level of control than, let's say, just hiring Pinkertons to beat on workers when they went on strike. So what's happened, as you know, you point out, which is that this class has 
kind of become over time the class that's doing this kind of so-called professional or knowledge work that's kind of been taken over by these tropes of of um, love. And I think, again, that has very much to do with a number of things. I think it has to do with class anxiety, um, first of all, in that, you know, People want to enter this class from the working class, perhaps, or if they're born into it, you know, if you're a child of parents who are kind of lawyers and professors, then, um, you know, very often the goal is to, to at least stay within that professional class. But, you know, it's been taken over by these tropes of um, love and passion. And I think that's you know, very much uh, a a kind of self-validating trope that circulates within professional workers. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of this work is becoming de-skilled. And this is causing, you know, I think a lot of tension and reevaluation among professional workers. So for instance, lawyers, you know, in the first years, one works as a lawyer in a law firm, you're doing a lot of kind of boring, repetitive, not terribly intellectual work. You know, for instance, quote unquote, doc review, which is where you are locked in a horribly depressing conference room with 50 boxes of documents and you have to flag everyone that mentions, you know, Mr. Smith. Well, that kind of work is now being um, outsourced either overseas. Um, it's being done by software. It's being done by temp workers, you know, who are attorneys who are temp workers, but they have law degrees. And so that work was never pleasurable, let's say, to begin with. But at least, you know, um, it used to be compensated with all kinds of perks, including a salary and, and other benefits. And now, e- now even those jobs are disappearing. Um, and I think within the law industry, it's kind of caused mass layoffs um, and, a, and a massive slowdown in recruitment out of law schools. So I think these narratives of love and kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and individualism, you know, people are realizing even at the professional class where you were supposed to be kind of safe from all of this, you know, I guess social or class backsliding, um, have realized that it's not true. You know, people have really acted in good faith. They've gone to college, they've taken on debt, they've gone to law school and taken on more debt. And, um, acquired all these skills and then they get into the workforce, you know, they get in and what they think is a stable job in, in the professional managerial class only to find that their own work has been de-skilled and that those jobs um, aren't as stable as perhaps they imagined. You discuss the impact of do what you, what do what you love in particular on women and on gender roles mm-hmm. in the workforce and in everyday life. Um, how has this conflation of actual self-fulfillment with what we're taught is some kind of self-actualization through work, um, how has the confusion between those changed the way women are seen in the workplace and how they see themselves? Yeah, um, well, I think that's a huge question, um, and it applies to women at every level of the workforce, including women who don't work outside of the home, but, you know, work within the space of the home. I think one huge ramification of do what you love for women is, um, the way in which certain types of 
work are not seen as skilled work, um, but they're seen as a natural kind of part of being a woman. Um, for instance, um, as you talk about so often on the podcast, care work, you know, is very often not seen as skilled. For example, early childhood education um, is a, a line of work that's very much undercompensated and underappreciated. And I think that has to do with the fact that people don't think that these are skilled workers, you know, um, because they're primarily, you know, overwhelmingly female. And the idea is, oh, well, you're a woman, so you'll just know what to do with a room full of 25-year-olds, um, which is obviously not the case. But even in other kinds of professional work, um, the skills that are kind of gendered as feminine or female tend not to be appreciated um, as much. So, for instance, I was having a conversation with someone about this uh, earlier within, let's say, academia or any kind of professional workspace. You know, when women serve as mentors, you know, that's often seen as something that they quote unquote should be doing because they're natural carers. They should be doing this work out of, you know, love and of their own impulse to nurture. And so very often things like mentoring, even if they're not actually being done by women, but because that task is kind of feminized, those are the kinds of um, activities that don't necessarily turn up on performance reviews and things like that. They're not seen as um, professional skills as often. So, you know, you could be a fantastic mentor in your workspace, but, um, and you can devote a lot of time and energy to that, but that maybe won't be rewarded when it comes time, you know, performance review and, um, and bonus time. Um, so I think that's one of, you know, very many ramifications of the way that, you know, do what you love, um, you know, takes on these various, uh, gendered, um, dimensions. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the whole, um, the whole rhetoric around, um, you know, teachers and primary school teaching, um, again, is very much inflected by gender. And even though obviously all of those workers aren't women, um, any line of work that's seen as, as feminine, feminized, um, is, it tends to be kind of undervalued, um, in terms of pay and things like that. Uh, and one final thing I would add is that when workers in the quote unquote feminized industries actually, you know, make demands as workers, I think the rhetoric around them is, is really fascinating, but also depressing. So when, when teachers and nurses, um, either go on strike or threaten to go on strike, the reaction to them is really vehement. You know, it's they're, they're, either greedy or lazy or both, um, because they're not kind of answering this calling, you know, they're not doing this work. Uh, it makes very clear that, um, you know, that this work is being done for a wage, which sits really uncomfortably, I think, with a lot of people. So you also write a lot um, in this book, and I think explain this really well, how there's sort of these two-tiered workplaces, um, unpaid internships, and these other ways that hope is used as a motivator, where the work ends up becoming its sort of own reward. 
How has hope become so central to the economy? And is there hope of a different kind um, in the recent resistance to like unpaid internships and these two tier pay scales? To answer the first part of your question, I think hope and the notion of meritocracy are, you know, very closely intertwined. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg situation, you know, which came yeah. first, the hope or the idea of the meritocracy. But um, again, when you're living in this kind of individualist notion of, you know, you not only do what you love, but, it, you know, it's entirely up to you to demonstrate, you know, how, quote unquote, worthy you are of you know, certain kinds of work or um, work conditions, uh, as opposed to things being just, you know, rights uh, for people. So once kind of you have a structure of meritocracy, which is, you know, natural, the, the, the cream will rise to the top and so on. Um, you create this culture of striving where everyone is working, not just to, to fulfill the tasks that they need to do, but they're working really hard to show how worthy they are. And um, that's something I wanted to emphasize because that's kind of extra work um, in a way. You know, you're, you're, let's say if you're a temp worker who's working in a factory or workspace and you're hoping to achieve, a, you know, full-time status, you're doing the, the tasks that are actually required of you. But then there's this extra kind of emotional work that you have to do to kind of show that you're hustling and to show that you want it. Um, and I really wanted to, to draw out how um, actually draining that is um, on other people. So I think when you have a system of a meritocracy, it totally justifies having a large pool of overexploited workers because the idea is that well you know you have to show that you quote unquote deserve to have something like a salary um and paid leave and um and job security and i think that what's so kind of dangerous and pernicious about hope is that it's uh it's something that's internalized by the worker in the kind of bottom tier of whatever workforce they are. So it's this really kind of dark situation where, let's say, you know, a worker is kind of doing very similar tasks, let's say, um, an adjunct college instructor, you know, is, you know, teaching the same students, doing many of the same tasks as, uh, as workers in that same institution who have secure jobs and salaries. But because of the, this notion that there is a, a meritocracy and that you always have to prove yourself, any kind of discourse on, on the fact that that might be unfair or exploitative is kind of crushed right away by this narrative of, well, you know, you don't just get a job. You have to prove that you deserve the job. And so, you know, you have all of these bottom tier workers kind of working incredibly hard in very close proximity to the kind of workers they want to be very often. And the hope then becomes this like internal motivator um, so that you, you have, you're doing work for kind of reduced pay, but you're doing it extra, extra hard to kind of make this outward show of um, how worthy you are. 
Um, and to answer the second part of your question really quickly, uh, you know, is there hope for a different way? Um, I, I, you know, I obviously think there is. Um, and I've been really inspired by a lot of these workers who are kind of being overly exploited. Um, you know, I think it's reached a point where people have had enough. So you see groups like interns getting together and advocating for labor rights. And obviously, you know, a, a number of unions across the U.S. have been working with um, adjunct instructors in higher ed. Um, and they're saying, okay, I realize that I will probably never even have the opportunity to get tenure. But what I can do is, you know, make demands for my current working conditions to get better. I can demand, you know, a long-term contract. I can demand paid leave um, and things like that. So I think the the fact that we're seeing some of these, you know, bottom tier workers, um, you know, making demands is, is actually very exciting um, and gives me hope <laughs> that, um, you know, people are kind of looking for another way. That was Mia Tokumitsu talking with us about her book, Do What You Love, and Other Lies About Success and Happiness. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for Arg. I wish I'd written that, where we bring you things we wish we had written but did not. My pick for this week is called Evergrowing, Everchanging, Inside the Calais Camp. It's in the September issue of Red Pepper magazine. And in this piece, Amy Corcoran takes us inside the Calais migrant encampment, which has been a hub of controversy over Europe's a so-called migration crisis, uh, long before the current influx of refugees that are uh, teaming at the borders of Hungary, Serbia, and uh, trying to make their way into Germany. Long before that, actually, there were many migrants setting up sort of a makeshift shanty town at the port of Calais, trying to get safe passage into the United Kingdom. These migrants are typically fleeing abject poverty, violence, desperation, political persecution, and conflict in their home countries. Many of them have traveled by land and sea through several countries to get to where they are now. Um, they're just on the edge of the United Kingdom, which they've come to see as sort of a promised land of sorts, but they find themselves shut out and creating their own alternative community. And Corcoran details not only the grim circumstances that they're living under in these makeshift encampments, but also the sort of a political economy that's developed in these little markets and industries that have been created to provide some semblance of a society, of a social fabric, of a decent life for these people. And yet it is always with this overhanging sense of alienation, extreme isolation, and growing despair. And uh, she asks a really hard question, which is, are we admitting that this is to be a permanent situation, a never-ending stream of people desperately escaping war and poverty, forced to live on France's northern shores in a forgotten and isolated ghetto, so close to the life they desire but just out of reach? And she talks about some of the rather valiant efforts that many charity groups are making, but the sense that you know these groups cannot sustain a real economy, and they're not meant to, and the people there don't have the resources resources 
to really create the decent lives for themselves that they are seeking. And from a labor standpoint, it's interesting to see this kind of society crop up because many of them came for jobs, they came to complete their educations, they came with dreams. Um, and as long as they're shut out of the mainstream economy for no reason other than their immigration status, then they will be forever relegated to idleness. And um, it's sort of suffocating um, as well as just puzzling to see the consequences of a Europe that refuses to acknowledge their humanity and their existence. So, you know, what are the consequences when people come through well-known human trafficking routes and become sort of part of this institutionalized migrant underclass? And we may cheer now when we see people handing toys and breads to migrants at the German train stations. But for a long-term solution, we need to start looking at what is truly sustainable and what do we do with newcomers who might be welcome, you know, on a superficial level, but must deal with the fundamental racism um, and institutionalized brutality of the European and, frankly, the entire global North's uh, immigration fortress. And as long as they are forced to live on the margins of society, they will be at the mercy of people who prey on their economic vulnerability, exploitative employers and smugglers, but also politicians and the nonprofit industrial complex and even the media, which uh, profits mightily from the salacious coverage of migrant hordes jumping the fence and these other sensationalistic tropes. And so it begs the question, what is social responsibility when it comes to people who are systematically denied citizenship? And what does that say about the nature of our laws? And what does that say about the crisis that is not about migration, but rather about how we envision the role of the nation? My ARG piece for this week is Brendan McQuaid at Jacobin, a piece titled A United Front. McQuaid was a member of the Faculty Forward campaign and writes about the challenges of the Fight for 15 as a as it tries to become a true social movement campaign. Through the context of the union that birthed it, SEIU, through questions about racial justice in the security state and the struggle of labor to put forth a vision that connects all of these issues. McQuaid notes that the ongoing tensions within the labor movement around security pr- and prisons as several cr- Unions represent correctional officers and must balance their concerns with the growing movement for black lives and a growing consensus that mass incarceration must end. As I discussed a couple of weeks ago, the University of California Graduate Workers Local has issued a call for the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate itself from police unions and others within the labor movement, including, of course, within the public sector unions that represent corrections officers in SEIU and AFSCME, are pushing for better policies from their unions on these issues. Meanwhile, Organizers from the Movement for Black Lives, like Charlene Carruthers for BYP 100, are connecting with labor over the Fight for 15, and you heard on our last episode from Rasheen Aldridge, a Fight for 15 member from St. Louis, who has been deeply involved in the Ferguson movement and actually served on the Ferguson Commission. Um, He spoke to us last episode about the raise of the minimum wage in St. Louis. Also, um, Jason Perez of BYP 100 is quoted in this story as saying, quote, labor needs to understand Black Lives Matter. It's not just a cultural affirmation project. In Chicago, about 40% of the budget goes to police. In most cities, it ranges from the high 20s to 40s. Realigning this investment is a redistribution issue, just like increasing the minimum wage. 
As McQuaid points out, the most progressive unions in the past fought Jim Crow segregation and white supremacy, understanding this as a critical part of the struggle for worker power. The combination of a vibrant racial justice movement and resurgent labor organizing could help both movements win victories. That is it for this week's Belabored. As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. Send us your stories of jobs you've loved and jobs you've hated. If you're a teacher, a fast food worker, a Walmart worker, or an unpaid or paid intern, we want to hear from you. Email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Tweet at us. We will be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.